You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Father in heaven, you have given to us more than we deserve in Christ. You have given us everything that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. You have given us more than what we even asked for. So, Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning that you desire but the things we need and the things that we need, not the things we desire, but the things we need, and that that would help us to desire you more, that we would that we would be transformed by your word through your spirit, that we would, that we would be changed, that we would behold your glory this morning and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, and that we would learn to trust you more, and that we would believe deeper and put confidence in that belief, God. Lord, we thank you for your grace that covers us when we fail to do this. So God, what we talk about this morning, would speak through me, help me to be forgotten, that you would be glorified and pleased by what's, what we talk about this morning, and that ultimately you would, again, be glorified. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the power in which you move and act in our, what you are capable of, and starting with the resurrection of Jesus. And so we pray this in Christ's name, amen. You guys can have a seat. So this is week 42 of the book of Luke. Um, we are almost done. Uh, the, on New Year's Eve, David will finish it up for us. Next week we start Advent. Um, but last week we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus, also Christmas in November, so the resurrection of Jesus. It's a little bit of uh, Easter in November, also Christmas in November, so it's just kind of a mishmash of holidays all at one time. And so we're going we're gonna to get there this morning. We'll be in Luke 23, the end of 23, starting in uh, verse 50. So while you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. My, my name's Matt Davis. I, I work with our care and counseling uh, ministry. Uh, and believe it or not, I love the game of golf. Right? I'm a pastor, so I think it's required for the job. But long before I was a pastor, I loved the game of golf. And when I was 9 or 10 and started to get into it, I really, truly, deeply, with all of my heart, all of my conviction, believed that I was going to be on the PGA Tour. Tour. And I believed it so... I'm kidding, you can laugh, it's funny. Um, I thought I was going to be on the PGA Tour. And I believed it so deeply that it motivated me to, to live and act in a way that would get me onto the PGA Tour. So in the summertime, I would get dropped off early, I would come home late, I would hit thousands of golf balls play, hundreds of holes. I would spend all my money on new equipment and, and playing. And, and then in the school year, I would think about golf. And then after school, I'd go play and practice all day, every day. I believed I was going to be on the tour. Not only was I going to be on tour, I was going to win multiple tournaments and at least two majors because one major is good, but two, that's like upper echelon stuff, all right? So, so that's where I wanted to get. And so I believed that wholeheartedly, and I did whatever. I, I let that move. What does me get uh, to that place where I wanted to be? Okay, so what does me loving the game of golf and hitting a million golf balls have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Everything and nothing, all at the same time. And I'll tell you in just a few minutes. But until then, uh, we're going to start in Luke 23, starting in verse 50. 
Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. Where no Come with him from Galilee. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So this is just a follow-up from last week. Jesus has died. He's really dead. And, and, and uh, they are, they're going to bury him. And a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, it's from a, a small town near Jerusalem, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that, that pushed the Romans, to, pushed Pilate to execute Jesus. And he's, but he's a good man. He didn't agree with the decision to execute him. Right? He actually believed that he was innocent and did not consent to what happened. Holes in the ground, they just push a bunch of them. Believed that because he was not a criminal, criminals were, were buried in these mass graves, holes in the ground, they just push a bunch of them. In, he believed he does not deserve that type of burial. And so he had a garden tomb that was cut out of stone. And he, because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, went to Pilate, had access to him, and went to him and said, listen, can I, can I have the body and bury him in this tomb? And, and you, you know, last week, remember, Pilate didn't really think Jesus was guilty either of, something, uh, of, of anything punishable by death. And so Pilate consented. He said, sure, take him. And so J- Joseph and his men take him and wrap him in a linen shroud and take him to the tomb. And there's some women with him that... Um, all the commentators say, saw the way the man did it and didn't think he did it right. And so they were like, tomorrow, because it's, um, bear some spices and oils and, and, and bury him properly. Um, but we can't do it t- tomorrow because it's um, the Sabbath. And so we're going to go prepare that, and then we're going to come back, right? And so they did that. Now, why were they preparing spices and oils? Well, uh, when they had these garden tombs, they had one of uh, two kind of options. So they would usually have these shelves where they would lay the body. And they would have either multiple shelves or one or two shelves and then some kind of holes in the stone in the back. And they would put spices and oils on these bodies because over time, what happens to a body that is dead? It decomposes and the flesh starts to rot and, you know, you have these smells. And so as you come in to put more people or uh, more people in there, you go into the tomb, body decomposes, they would take the bath. And they assumed that this was going to happen to Jesus. And so after the body decomposes, they would take the bones and gather them and put them into a box or some type of bag or something like that, and they would put them in these holes in the back of the tomb. And so they assumed that this was going to happen to Jesus, and so they were going to go back, because he was dead, prepare the body for that with spices and oils. So uh, chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, he is to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. 
That have it, that there's a, a through the women that have prepared these spices go to the tomb, and they expect the tomb to be closed, and to have it that there's a, a like, almost like a groove in the ground that people would roll the stones away, and they expected that to be closed, and for them to, but when they arrive, the tomb is open, and not only is the tomb open, they walk in and see that there's no body, just the, the linen shroud. Okay, and so they're perplexed, and while they're standing there, two men in dazzling clothes show up. Right? We know that these are angels. Okay, and so these men, and whenever angels show up, they're there to proclaim something. And the, the men turn to them, who are bowed in, in kind of fear, and go, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you expecting to find Jesus here? Right, remember how he told you that this is going to happen, that he's going to be handed over and crucified, and then on the third day, rise from the dead? Why are, why are you here? And they remembered his words. And so they get up and they run back to the apostles. The, the 11, at this point, who had spent the most time with Jesus, and they tell them what had happened, and the apostles are like, uh, I don't think so. That's crazy. You guys, that's an idle tale. It's like a fairy tale. It's not true. Okay, and so that, that's, that's where we are. But Peter, who, if you remember two weeks ago, Jesus told Peter, he said, listen, you're going you're gonna to fall, you're going to deny me, but then you're going to be restored. Peter said, of course I love you. That's more of the, what we would consider the restoration of Peter. But this is something. He's, he's, he's waiting for it. He's got that fresh on his mind. It was only a couple days ago that he denied Jesus. So he gets up and he runs to find this body. You know, if you remember, he, he was the one who attacked in the garden. He's, he's, he's a man of action. And so he, he went and he found it just as they had told him. And so he is marveling. It's not that, this isn't the point at which he believes, but he's, he knows that something's happening. Something is going on here. And he can't explain it. Okay? So, end scene. Right? We're going to move to the next scene. Just like that. So verse 13, uh, road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, going to a village, na- a village named Emmaus, about seven miles passing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And Jesus said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at angels who had said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So there are these two guys, these two followers of Jesus who saw Jesus crucified, believe he was crucified, believe he is dead, and so they are walking seven miles back to where they live, okay? You don't walk seven miles if you think at any moment somebody's, something strange is going to happen, right? And so they're walking. They walk these seven miles, and as they're walking, Jesus just shows up and starts walking next to him and goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And, and, and they can't recognize him, and we don't know if that's just because God made it to where they couldn't see or there's something about Jesus' resurrected body that is recognizable but also unrecognizable, Right, and so we don't know that. It doesn't really matter. We just know that they can't recognize him. And so as they're walking and talking, he goes, what are you talking about? And they, and they just stop and they go, man, don't you know 
Are you the only person who hasn't heard everything that's, ha- that's happened over in Jerusalem? You know, Jesus, who was a great man, a prophet, you know, the council killed him. They, they, they delivered him over to be crucified. And, and then, you know, even crazier than that, like, we, the women that were with us, they went and saw the tomb this morning. He's not there. And we had even hoped that, hoped that this guy would be the one to redeem Israel. And so Jesus says, man, you guys, slow of heart to believe. And then he, this guy who didn't know what happened, explains, gives him a schooling in theology, right? And explains to them through Moses and the prophets everything that was supposed to happen, how he was supposed to be crucified and then was supposed to rise three days later. So, so verse um, 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is now toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen and indeed has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, so they get near Emmaus, and I love, I love it because it's, it's just funny to me. Jesus is like, well, I'm going to keep on going. You know, you ever had that, like, guest? It's like, well, I guess I'll leave now. And they're like, no, stay, stay. He's like, okay. You know, and then he goes inside, and he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. And when he breaks the bread, they recognize him. And then he's gone. He just vanishes. Right? And then they look at each other, and they're like, man, didn't our hearts burn within us when he explained to us the scriptures? Did, didn't it burn you? And yeah, didn't you burn? Why didn't you say something? I don't know. Why didn't you say something? You know? And so they get up and they run back seven miles. It was the end of the day, right? So they're probably arriving. I don't know. I don't run seven miles regular, but I can imagine it takes multiple hours. And so they get back in the middle of the night. Does it not take several hours? I don't know. <laughs> Man, some of y'all are like, oh, it took me 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, okay, no. I'd be like half a mile, and then I'm like, well, walk a little, and you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. All right, so, so they get back to where the apostles are, and they, they see them, and they're talking about it, because apparently at some point between Simon marveling at seeing the empty tomb and Simon getting back to the apostles, Jesus had appeared to them. And we don't know anything about that encounter, we just know he had appeared. Okay, and so he had appeared, and the women had seen the angels and the empty tomb and all this stuff, and then the guys from Emmaus show up and go, well, this is what happened to us. We walked with him and talked with him. He explained to us all the scriptures. And, he, and, and, and we recognized him when he broke the bread, and then he was gone. So that's where we are. Verse 36, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And he, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So they're all huddled together, talking about what they had seen. And Jesus, I just, in my kind of unsanctified imagination, I see like Jesus leaning in, and he's like, Peace to you. And they go, oh, jeez. And he's like, no, Jesus. So, <laughs> sorry. So, they're, so they're, they're startled. They were not expecting to see Jesus. Right? They were not expecting to see him at all. They were like, 
you know, and, and he's like, why are, you, why are you startled? I'm, I'm me. Like, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me. A, a, a spirit doesn't have flesh or bones. Like, you know, and they're still kind of startled. And he goes, do you have anything to eat? And I just see him, like, take some fish, and they're like, you know, like, he's going to bite them or something. Like, they don't know what to think about this guy. And so he takes the fish, and he eats it. And then he said to them, in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and, this, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So as they're sitting there, Jesus says, listen, this is what I said to you. Same thing that he told the other people. He, I had to die, and I was going to raise on the third day. Remember, all of, this thing was, all, all of this was written about me, and he explains through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the entirety of the Jewish Old Testament, right? The, this, the whole thing, it's written about me over and over and over and over and over again. And so this is the, the, the promise that he says, like, listen, I, this was going to happen. And now, now it's happened. Now I'm here. And now you all are my witnesses to these things, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right, this is it. You are my witnesses starting right here in Jerusalem with you guys. You are to be my witnesses to go out from Jerusalem and tell people about this. He says, but stay here until you receive uh, the, the gift, the Holy Spirit, as we, we know. Stay here until you are clothed with power from on high. So in our time remaining, there's two points, two points that I want to make this morning uh, based in this text. And one was very specifically for, for Luke was writing to Theophilus, and, and it was for that purpose, and it's for us. And the other one is a little bit more applicable to us. So the first point that I want to make is that Jesus is really alive. Jesus is really alive. And you're like, Matt, that's a simple point. That's right. Jesus is really alive. Jesus, through these, these uh, narratives, Jesus is confirming to his followers that he is really raised from the dead. And he's explaining to them why it should not actually surprise them. Right? And so how do we, how do we know? How, how did the, the, the people in these stories know that he was really alive? Well, the first was the appearances of the angels, proclaiming. Anytime an angel shows up, they're proclaiming. Right? And, and, and the thing about it, too, is that there's witnesses to all of these things. Right? If, in Jewish law, two witnesses had to be present for it to be a valid witness. Okay, so you've got multiple women. You've got the two men on the road to Emmaus. You've got uh, all of the apostles and the women and the guys from Emmaus in the room together later. But the, the appearances of the angels that say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then the appearance of Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus and then amongst the, the, the whole group, all of them together at one time. Okay, so you've got appearances. And two, by, by showing them repeatedly the fulfilled prophecies through the scripture, through Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Again, the entirety of the Old Testament. So in our 2017 church culture, we say fulfilled prophecies, and we go, yeah, fulfilled prophecies. A prophecy being fulfilled is one of the more amazing things that can ever happen. 
Think about this. Most of these prophecies uh, took place, give or take a couple hundred years, a thousand years before Jesus. Right? A thousand years before Jesus. And this is such a, a huge deal, right? If there are uh, supposed fulfilled pro- one fulfilled prophecy with, you know, boys in China, and they, they are worshipped, okay? The statistical anomaly of even eight, eight fulfilled prophecies in one man is astronomical, right? It's the chance of that happening is one to 10 in the 17th power. That's ten, one with 17 zeros after it, okay, for eight prophecies, right? And so I was reading this article. This guy gave this illustration. I, thought, I think it's really helpful. If you take a silver dollar and you have 10, uh, one to the seven, 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and you take the state of Texas, okay, take the state of Texas and, you know, you just lay it down and you put those silver dollars in the state of Texas, it covers the entire state two feet high, okay? And then you take one of them and you take a Sharpie and you make an X on it and you throw it out there and then you mix them all up and then you take your friend and you put a blindfold on him and you say, you walk into Texas and you find that one coin with an X and you have one shot. That is the statistical all virtual impossibility of eight fulfilled prophecies. Does anybody know how many prophe- prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus? Over 330. Over 330. That is a statistical impossibility unless he's God. Unless he is sovereignly in control over everything. Unless he says it and then brings it to completion. If he promises a thousand years ago and then brings it to fruition. Here's eight. Eight in the book of Luke alone. Right? Number one, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's prophesied in Micah 5, 2, fulfilled in Luke 2, 4, and 6. Uh, two, Messiah would be born a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, fulfilled in Luke 1, 26, 31. Messiah would be born uh, an heir of David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, 12, fulfilled in Luke 1, 32, and 33. Uh, four, Messiah's throne would be anointed and eternal, Psalm 45, 6, and 7, and Luke, uh, fulfilled in Luke 1, 33. Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53. We saw that in just a second ago in Luke 23. Uh, darkness would fall over the land and when Messiah is killed, Amos 8, 9, Fulfilled in Luke 23, 44, Messiah would commit himself to God. Psalm 31, 5, when Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And number eight, Messiah would pray for his persecutors. Isaiah 53, 12, fulfilled in Luke 23, 32. That's eight. We've got about 323 to go. Okay, and those are only in Luke. And some of these were a huge deal because the person of Jesus had no control over any of this. Right? Uh, where he would be born. I was born at Candler. No say so in that. I didn't. No say so in that. Uh, what, through what line I would be born. My parents are right there. I had no say so in who my parents were going to be, and neither did you. Okay? What would be the form of Roman execution at the time it was for him to be killed? He gets no say so in that. Now, God, Father, and sovereignty, yes, absolutely. But the person of Jesus, the man of Jesus, no. No say so in that. So Luke, writing this, wanted Theophilus and his readers to know that Jesus is really alive. He really rose from the dead, and that really, uh, that matters, and we can concretely know that to be true, which is really, really important to our next point. And that's this, that belief motivates action. Belief motivates action. Belief motivates obedience. What we believe 
dictates what we do. So I want to try and explain this a little more clearly before I get into the point I'm trying to make. Uh, Webster's definition of belief is this. A state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or thing. Okay, a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or thing. These are not definitive uh, psychological statements or anything like that. It's just a couple of categories that I think will help explain what I'm talking about. So let's, just, let's talk state of mind, state of belief, right? Let's, let's, the core ability, the core belief and ability to be persuaded to an idea, okay? So this is me going, I am going to be on the PGA Tour. That's my state of mind. I walk around, I would walk into the clubhouse and think to myself, why aren't you guys like asking for my autograph? I'm going to be on the PGA Tour. That's just the posture in which I walked. I believed it. Okay? But this belief in Christ in this way is a gift. If we're born with eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear, for us to be persuaded to this idea is a gift. Nobody comes unless the Father draws them. We, this is a gift to understand this and conceptualize it and believe it. Okay? But then there's the habit of belief. Right? The habit of belief is the repetition of, of, of you reminding yourself of this truth. Right? So what does that mean? In my brain, I thought to myself... To be on the PGA Tour, it's going to take me hitting a million golf balls and practicing and reminding myself that I'm going to be on the PGA Tour. So if I go out and shoot 100, I'd be like, it's no big deal, shake it off, I'm going to be on the PGA Tour. And you repeatedly tell you these things. And then you go out and dictate, and that dictates what you do. So that dictates the fact that I'm going out to hit a million golf balls. Okay? You guys following that? So for Christians, this goes back to continually placing our trust and confidence in the person of Jesus, right? And, and a God who is able to raise Jesus from the dead. And then putting that belief into action and having confidence in his ability to fulfill what he says. Okay, so God is alive. He's able to raise Jesus from the dead. He is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. This is the state of belief. And then we continually go back to that and remind ourselves of that and talk about what he's able to do because he says that he's able to do it. And it's important that we solidify what we believe about the resurrection because it's the difference between believing in someone who is dead and believing in someone who is alive. Believing in someone who is capable versus believing somebody in somebody who is not capable. So all the people in this story should have been there on Sunday morning, right? This had all been said. This had all been said that this was going to happen. All of the people, the women, the men on the road back to Emmaus, and all the apostles should have been on Sunday morning there at the tomb ready to celebrate. Right? They should have been. Right? What do we say every Easter? He is risen. He is risen. risen. All right. So Jesus, the stone should have rolled away. Jesus should have walked out to a crowd and say, I'm risen. And they should have said, you are risen indeed. But who was there? When they got there, the stone was already rolled away. Nobody saw it. Nobody was there. But it was here the whole time. In essence, they were, in their darkest hour, what was revealed is that what they said they believed and the confidence they had in that belief were two very different things. Okay, what they said they believed and the confidence they held in that belief were two very different things. They were looking for the living among the dead. 
And the reality is that some of us in here are looking for the living among the dead. If God raised Jesus from the dead, what else is he capable of? Right? He dealt with your sin problem. That is the biggest problem that we had. He, he poured out his wrath onto Jesus last week in the crucifixion and today the resurrection. He raised Christ from the dead. What else is he capable of doing? In your hour of darkness, this was, remember, this was the darkest period in human history, the darkest three days that have ever been. And in their darkest hour, what was revealed was the belief that they had and the confidence they had in it were not equal. Right? And in your darkest hour, where are you going to be, where are you going to be comforted? Where, is what you believe and what you, your, the confidence you have in that equal? Right? And, and this is why this is important. 2 Peter 1.3 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So listen, everything that you need for life and for godliness are found in the knowledge of him. He has given us that. And if you're a Christian, they run like this. Okay, so everything in life and everything about pursuing godliness are found in the knowledge of him. We have everything we need because he's told us everything we need because he's told us about him in the scriptures. Now, I told you at the beginning, I work in our care and counseling ministry, um, and and so I'm going to kind of talk about that for a minute, counsel for a minute. When life is hard and we suffer or we're anxious or we're sad or depressed, or where is your natural inclination to go for help? Just where, where is your natural inclination to go for help? Right? Like, most people will tell you, go to somebody that the world says can give, bring you help. Go to somebody, that, a professional that can help you. And that's not a knock on counselors or professionals or anything like that. But the world has one view, one idea of how to get you help, how to get you to better, and the Bible has a different view. What is the point of suffering? Why, why do we suffer? Why does God allow suffering? How does it change us and transform us? All of these things, two different ideas. Suffering changes us and it reveals things in us that need to be changed and it teaches us to rely on God and all of those things. But because we're we're so swayed by the world and, and, and their methodology of care and counseling that that's where we tend to go. We tend to go to that, that thing. And listen, if Sigmund Freud or Carl Rogers or any of these guys have a methodology that's better than Jesus Christ, we should worship them and not Jesus. We should. If there's something that can help us be transformed into... To, to, uh, a better person or a more holy person, we should follow that methodology. But see, Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive. Everything he said in this is true. We have everything we need for life and for godliness in Scripture. And I believe that because Jesus is alive, because he did rise from the dead. 
This is why it matters. This is why my point one was Jesus is really alive. Heath Lambert, who's the head over our uh, counseling certification that we go through, he's president of the organization. He said this, and it's a paraphrase, but it's close enough. He said that if we go outside of the scriptures for heart help, and so what I mean by that is not a broken arm, right? It's, it's motivation of belief. It's, it's how we believe what we believe, what are we motivated to do. Right? If we go outside of the scriptures for heart help, then it means that the Bible is insufficient to deal with our pain and suffering. And if the Bible loses its sufficiency, then it also loses its authority. And if it loses its authority in some areas, it loses its authority in all areas. Did you hear what he just said? If, if we have to go outside of the scripture for help on belief and motivation and what's going on in our heart, if we have to go outside of the scriptures for that, then the Bible, what we're saying is, the Bible's insufficient to deal with it. And listen, some of you have never thought this. And it's not, so it's not a, it's not a knock on or, or, or meant to bring down anybody in here. Some of, I, for the longest time, I never thought that. I never thought the idea that the scriptures could be insufficient to deal with my struggles. Right? Because it, it dealt with my salvation. But in, in, in effectually, that's what we're saying. But see, if... if Christ was crucified and then raised from the dead and could deal with our deepest, deepest issues, our heart issue of sin, that we need a Savior, what else is he capable of doing? Can he deal with you? Is he powerful enough and, and, and able to deal with your worry and your fear and your sadness and your heartache and your finances and your parenting and your marital struggles and all of the above? Is he capable of helping? Because in the scriptures, we have everything for, we need for life and godliness. There's something about your struggles in here. There's something about how to deal with your pain and your sadness and your, your heartache and your parenting and your marriage and all of the above. It's in here. It's always been here. Just like it was always in there for the, that Jesus was going to die and then be raised from the dead. That's why there should have been a party on Sunday, not a dirge. It's all in there. It's always been there. So in your hour of darkness, where are you going for comfort? Where are you going for care and transformation? Our comfort can only be found in him. Our confidence in him grows and our trust in him grows when we, when we believe and we put our faith in that and we put our trust in that and we go back to that over and over and over again. Because here's the thing. Jesus if he says something, if he promises something, he puts it on himself to see it to completion. He doesn't say, I promise I'm going to do that, now good luck. No, he says, I promise I'm going to do that. And if he promises, he, he puts it on himself to see it through. So we can have confidence in that. And so this morning, you're probably one of a couple of people in here. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you're probably thinking to yourself, you are, this man is crazy. And to you, I would say, okay, maybe I am. <laughs> but maybe I'm not. Maybe for 2,000 years, people have been trying to disprove this. And that's why Luke said, go talk to Cleopas. Go talk to the apostles. Go talk to these women that were there. Her, their names are Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. Okay, there's Cleopas. There's, of course, Simon who saw. Go talk to them. Go prove me wrong. This is written so that we would confirm the things that we believe and have heard to be true. 
okay? Fulfilled prophecies. Statistical impossibility unless he's God and it's true. And the hope of the resurrection is that, listen, we are sinners in need of a savior. The, for the wages of sin is death. Right? The, the, we get paid for the job we do and our job is death. I mean, our, our, our payment is death. Right? But, and all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior and the hope of the resurrection is the punishment that you deserve for sin is put onto Christ. And now, if we believe, we're saved. But if he's capable of doing that, what else is he capable of doing? Right? If you're in here this morning, you're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and, and I'm struggling in this area or that area. Don't you think if he can rise from the dead that he's able to help you in those areas too? Right? We've got to go back to that. We can't be swayed by anything other than that. And listen, th- this is what we do at the church. Not just me, but as a church. Right? Like, yes, we want to help you. We want to, if you come to us for help, we want to point you to the scriptures. We want to see what, what does the Bible have to say about anxiety and depression and marriage and parenting and all of the above. We're going to go to the scripture and we're going to talk about what motivates you to act the way you do and to do the things that you do. We're going to talk about that. But it's not just me. It's not just some of our pastors. It's each other. Right? We, we, we need to be exhorting one another daily to the scriptures and to, to godliness and, and be reminding one another of, hey, if we see sin in, in each other's lives, we're, we're called to call it out. We're called to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1. We need to do these things. Okay. Off my counseling stool. Uh, listen, this doesn't just play itself out on a personal level. Okay? It doesn't play itself on a personal level. The world needs to know this. They need to know that Jesus was killed and that he has risen from the dead. And that that is the greatest news, the greatest hope that the world can or will ever know. Right? We, we have a sin problem. God, through Christ, has taken care of that. Through the cross. The world needs to know this. So now, because Jesus is alive, because we know that, that we're motivated to do these things, that we are going to be clothed, and we're, we're past this, so we're clothed with power from on high in the Holy Spirit, we need to go and be witnesses. And here it was, hey, we're going to start right here in this room in Jerusalem. We're going to go out and be witnesses to these things. I've showed you that it's true. We're going to go out and be witnesses to these things. And this is us too. All of this doesn't just end on us. But think about it. If we don't have trust and confidence and belief that Jesus really raised from the dead, we're not going to tell other people about it. We're not. Like, and I get it. Some people are just, man, their natural, their, their abilities and gifting is more in evangelism, as though they're telling everybody about it. And some people are a little more like one-on-one, and, and that's fine. But our hope and confidence is in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and that people need to know that. Look, turn on the TV. Or don't. That's fine too. The reality is that the world in so many areas is crumbling and it's because of sin and darkness. The world needs to know. We need to be witnesses to, to what Christ has done for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. Right? We need to be witnesses to these things.
In Mark 9, there's a story of a, of a guy who goes to Jesus, and he's got a son who is, has these seizures, and he just throws them around, and, and he, he goes to Jesus, and he goes, if you are able, please heal my son. And Jesus says, if I'm able, if I'm able, and the man turns to Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I want to believe more. And listen, this morning, Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's saying to all of us, man, if I'm able, if I'm able, you're not asking enough. You're not asking, everything you need for life and godliness is right here. You're not asking enough. Because the truth of the scripture is that because Jesus is alive, he is taking us on this journey of total heart transformation, of conforming us to godliness. And so the hope that we can even do that is found in the resurrection of Jesus. And so, so we're going we're gonna to worship in just a minute, but I, I want to bring it back to the reality. Y'all, there's so much, so much. that the, the, the reality that Christ died and rose again is so much greater than sometimes we give it credit for. It's able to reach into the farthest darkness of our lives and transform it. It gives us hope that in any situation, we're not, we're not confined to be labeled by a certain way that our brain supposedly works. We're not confined to a, a way that we've always acted this way. My parents are this way, so I'm this way. That's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that, no, my heart is changed. When is a thief no longer a thief in Ephesians 4? It's not... When I stop stealing, it's when I learn to have a job and work with my own hands and be generous. That's heart transformation. That's different. And that's the hope of the scripture. That is because Jesus is alive, we can know that and trust that and have confidence in that, continually go back to that reality. So we want to worship now. We want to, I'm going to pray and we're going to worship and just worship the God who, who rose Christ from the dead. That because of that, so much is possible. So much of our heart can be changed and transformed completely into conformity to Christ's likeness. And that's what he's after. That's what he wants. And if we can help you, by all means, please find me, find one of our pastors, email us this week. This is what we want to do. We want to help in this. But y'all, this is the God we worship. So he is risen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for raising Christ from the dead. Thank you for, as it says in Isaiah, for making it your will to crush him and then to raise him from the dead, to pour out your wrath against sin onto Jesus for, for our sake. Because we need it. We need a Savior. We we're destined to spend eternity apart from you and you sent Christ. And now we are in Christ if we believe and we are white as snow and you're presenting us as spotless uh, to our groom. And so God, I just pray like the man in Mark that we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to believe more. Help us to ask more that we would not be confined by a label that somebody else has given us, but God, that you would, the hope of your gospel is that you bring dead things to life. 
so Lord, I just pray that you would continue to show us, continue to help us, continue to help our eyes to see and our ears to hear definitively your promises that all have their fulfillment in the reality that Christ rose from the dead. We pray in his name. Amen.